What's up, this your boy Lil Duval, and check out my podcast, Conversations with Unc, on the Black Effect Podcast Network. Each and every Tuesday, Conversations with Unc podcast feature casuals and in-depth talk about ebbs and flows of life and the pursuit of happiness. Unlike my work on stage, I tap into a more serious and sensitive side to give life advice and simply offer words of encouragement, yet remind folks to never forget to laugh. Every Tuesday, listen to Conversations with Unc, hosted by Lil Duval on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Presented by AT&T. Connecting changes everything. The Black Effect presents Family Therapy, and I'm your host, Elliot Connie. Jay is the woman in this dynamic who is currently co-parenting two young boys with her former partner, David. David, he is a leader. He just don't want to leave me. But how do you lead a woman? How do you lead in a relationship? Like, what's the blueprint? David, you just asked the most important question. Listen to Family Therapy on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Get emotional with me, Radhi Devlukia, in my new podcast, A Really Good Cry. We're going to be talking with some of my best friends. I didn't know we were going to go there on this. (laughs) People that I admire. When we say listen to your body, really tune in to what's going on. Authors of books that have changed my life. Now you're talking about sympathy, which is different than empathy. Never forget, it's okay to cry as long as you make it a really good one. Listen to A Really Good Cry with Radhi Devlukia on the iHeartRadio app. Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, and welcome back to Movie Mike's Movie Podcast, your go-to source for all things movies. I am your host, Movie Mike, and today I am looking back at my top five favorite interviews of the year. I'll explain why these were my favorite to give you some behind the scenes with each of these interviews. Let's waste no time and get right into this. Let's get started. In a world where everyone and their mother has a podcast. One man stands to infiltrate the ears of listeners like never before in a movie podcast. A man with so much movie knowledge, he's basically like a walking IMDb with glasses. From the Nashville Podcast Network, this is Movie Mike's Movie Podcast. So we've reached the end of another year and I wanted to share with you my favorite interview moments from... 2021. I love getting to do interviews on this podcast, especially when it's people that I was a fan of as a kid, or they're in some of my favorite movies, or they're a part of a project that I'm really excited about. So I've pulled my top five, and here we go. Starting at number five was getting to talk to some of the original cast of Willy Wonka earlier this year. They were celebrating the 50th anniversary of the movie. Yes, the 50th anniversary of Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory, which is one of my favorite movies of all time. And it was so cool to see them all together again via Zoom, of course, and getting to ask them about that original movie. We debunked some myths that I've seen online forever and found out whether or not they were really true. And it was just awesome to get to talk to people who are a part of movie history. So at number five is the original cast of Willy Wonka. I got to talk to the actors who play Charlie Bucket, Veruca Salt, Mike TV, and Augustus Gloop. So let's check it out at number five. How are y'all? Great to to see y'all. Great to get to talk to y'all. First of all, what's it like to see everybody again for the first time in a long time? It isn't the first time in a long time. Um, We have actually, even during COVID, we've caught up a couple of times. We've done a couple of social calls because we are kind of a weird family. So, um, but you know, the fact that we are still here 50 years later, that's that's the extraordinary thing. That's great. Well, I have some myths I've heard about filming and I wanted to get 
what really happened from you guys. So the first thing I heard of is that some of you experienced some pretty crazy nightmares after filming that famous tunnel scene. Was that a real thing? No, no nightmares here. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, not exactly nightmares. Uh, I think it was more of a living nightmare while we shot it rather than something we dreamed about later. Um, uh, you know, they, they warmed us up with some flashing lights and some, uh, scary footage that they uh, projected across the wall. Uh, and then of course, Gene did his, uh, crazy read. Uh, and so, uh, we weren't really prepared for that. So it was, it was nightmarish to shoot, but I don't remember having a nightmare after the fact. So it was after the fact, what was it like being there when he's giving this performance that you had really no idea what he was going to do? It was just like, all right, here it is. Here's Gene Wilder kind of going a little mad. They, they, they didn't tell us. I mean, we'd read the script, so we knew what he was going to do. We just didn't know how he was going to do it. And that was the scary thing. And as, as, as Pete has said as well, you know, there was kind of sweat and spit flying. <laughs> you know, it was very attractive as this guy, you know, really being crazy. So, yeah, that was, it was, it was a little scary, but uh, no, no lasting nightmares. So the other myth I heard was that I know a lot of the candy was, you know, fake props. Some of it was made out of wood. Some of it was just plastic. But the Chocolate River, was that real? And by the end of filming, what did that smell like? Horrible. The smell is horrible. Because <laughs> actually it was sinking water and it was uh, not uh, any taste of chocolate at all. It was there for weeks and uh, was not uh, freshly made. So... No, no, no fun to jump in this. And you had to actually be in that. What, 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 did you go in there? Was it a stump person? What happened? No, no. I had to jump in this sinking uh, water, and it was very swallow, and I had uh, to hit a, a hole that was just a square meter. And, uh, yes, I was very anxious uh, that I wouldn't get the hole and would have hit my head on the bottom <laughs> of the, um, the chocolate river. That's crazy. So... Peter, I had another myth for you. Um, I heard that at the start of the movie and throughout the movie, you were going through puberty and that your voice is higher at the beginning of the movie and lower at the end. Is that true? I guess you told me. I, I mean, I think, I think we were all going through puberty during that. But, uh, yeah, I, I, I don't know. Um, I, I guess it's a little higher. I don't know. Julie, what do you think? Is my voice low? I don't know. I, I, I was just thinking, and I was thinking, actually, you know, maybe that was something to do with the piano wires when you were in the fizzy lifting drink. Maybe, maybe your voice went higher. Maybe, maybe, right. Exactly. Exactly. If it, if it were me, I think I would have answered that question as follows. Sure, <laughs> it was lower and then it went lower at the end of the film. I certainly um, noticed uh, that my, my dress was getting shorter <laughs> because I was growing. Just growing. Yeah, but <laughs> your hair, though. But your hair my was hair, well, right? Yeah, yeah, and my hair. My hair, well, actually, my hair shrank because we had a crazy uh, hairdresser woman that it, back in the day, everybody was obsessed with split ends. That was the thing back then about, you know girls you have split ends and you would twist your hair into a rope and run a candle down it to burn off the split ends and it just was this terrible smell of burning hair but all that was happening was she was burning my hair it was getting shorter <laughs> well i appreciate so there was a scene where i go i go out of the inventing room and then into the, uh, the lickable wallpaper and it's visibly two inches shorter <laughs> <laughs> well i appreciate the time thanks for helping put all those myths to rest and thank you so much <laughs> Thank you. Sorry, it was so quick. (laughs) Have a good one. Thank you, Mike.
At number four is probably the person I was most intimidated to interview because he is a living legend and it is director Chris Columbus. We got to talk about Harry Potter. We also got to talk about Home Alone. And I could have talked way longer with Chris Columbus because he's written and directed so many movies that have been so influential on all of our childhoods, really. And I can't wait to see him. He's part of the HBO Max special with the Harry Potter reunion. So we got to talk all about Harry Potter. So here it is at number four, Chris Columbus. Mike, how you doing? Hey, it's an honor to talk to you today. Thank you so much. Nice to meet you. So I imagine when you go into directing the first Harry Potter, there's a lot of nerves of just like getting it right from the book adaptation. How many times did you have to read the book before you did this movie? Well, my daughter had to persuade me to read the book. Okay. You know, I... She started with uh, Sorcerer's Stone. She said, will you read this? It would make a great movie. I said, no. She was about nine at the time. So I lived through Sorcerer's Stone, Chamber of Secrets, Prisoner of Azkaban. Finally, after Azkaban, I said, okay, all right, I'll re- I read them. So I read them in two days, and I knew immediately I have to make this into a film. So I called my agent, and I said, I'd love to direct the first Harry Potter film. She said, you and about 30 other people. She said, get in line. So uh, I was fortunate enough to get the job, but it was, you know, I knew it was, as they called it, a bake-off at the time. So while you're filming this movie, do you sleep at all? Like, I imagine just the the scale of the production, what's going through your mind of trying to get everything right. Like, are you able to process that and still do a movie? Oh, God, yeah. Remember, I shot it in England, and yeah. there are pubs everywhere. So you hit the pub, have a couple of pints, and you sleep very well. <laughs> so it's the 20th anniversary. And for me, it's a movie that I, for some reason, associate with Christmas. Like, every single Christmas, I end up watching the first Harry Potter. Like, do you feel comfortable people calling the first Harry Potter a Christmas movie? I don't know if it's completely a Christmas movie. Like, Home Alone is a Christmas movie. But... uh Die Hard, debatable. Everybody's arguing about that one. Uh, but I think that Potter, it's just the sense of warmth. And there's a fuzzy quality, even though it's, there's moments of darkness in the film. I think that's why it's shown at Christmas all the time. I can't escape the movie at Christmas. I mean, Yeah, it's everywhere. The first two Potter films are always playing from Thanksgiving to January 1st, which is, uh, you know, a good feeling. If there was anything you could change from the way that the first one was made, what would you change about it? I think I go back and work on the visual effects of the Quidditch match. You know, you're talking 20 years ago and visual effects weren't as sophisticated as they are today. They were good, but they weren't great. So I would love to spend about four more months working on that first Quidditch match. If they came to you today and said, hey, could you, they wanted to reboot Harry Potter. Is that something you would even try to tackle? Oh God, no, it's been done. I mean, I try to tackle, I I think there's a fascinating uh, film to be made of, Cursed Child mm-hmm. with our original cast, Harry Potter and the Cursed Child. They're almost ready to play those roles age-wise. Um, that would be great to revisit it in the same way J.J. kind of went back and revisited Star Wars and did the smartest, most brilliant thing ever, brought back the original cast. So there's just a feeling of nostalgia that I think is, is kind of a wonderful thing. Has there been any talks of that or is that just something that you could see happening? I just, I think I, you're probably the second person I've said that to, <laughs> but you know, <laughs> you ask me. So going back, you, you referenced your movie Home Alone. Now to the people who do argue that that's not a Christmas movie, what do you say to those people? Uh, it's definitely a Christmas movie. I mean, that's even down. I mean, it's, without a doubt, it takes place over Chris, on Christmas Eve. It's a, it's a Christmas movie. I think my favorite thing about that 
I think you were so particular about the colors in that movie of making like the the green and the red wallpaper. To me, the whole movie just has that feeling. So it's hard for me when people are like, no, that's not a Christmas movie. No, I mean, Home Alone was designed to be a Christmas film, but a warm. I always hate when I see these Christmas films that are that where the uh, either the decorations or the set design is, is uh, just cheesy and, and and not warm. The thing about Christmas that makes it work on film is the warmth. So that's what we went to. You mentioned the wallpaper, which was a big debate for like a month before we actually built the set because I wanted to get the color palette was, you know, burgundy, deep greens, gold, just to get that warmth, that warm feel. And also carried out over some of that to, to Potter as well. You know, we use that warmth in the Christmas scenes in Harry Potter. Well, I appreciate the time. It was a great talking to you. Thanks. What is that guitar, the blue one? I think... Uh, when we shot Christmas Chronicles, Little Steven in the, in the musical number played that guitar. That is I don't a, remember what it was. That's a jazz master. Okay, excellent. That looks <laughs> great. Well, thank you. Have a good day. <laughs> you too. I'm Elliot Connie, and this is Family Therapy. My best hopes, I guess, identify the life that I want and, and work towards it. i never seen a man take care of my mother the way she needed to be taken care of. I get the impression that you don't feel like you've done everything right as a father. Is that true? That's true. And I'm not offended by that. Thank you for for going through those things and thank you for overcoming them. Wow. Thank God for deliverance. Every time I have one of our sessions, our sessions be positive. It just keeps me going. I feel like my focus is redirected in a different aspect of my life now. So... How'd we do today? We did good. The Black Effect presents Family Therapy. Listen now on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Get emotional with me, Radhi Devlukia, in my new podcast, A Really Good Cry. We're going to talk about and go through all the things that are sometimes difficult to process alone. We're going to go over how to regulate your emotions, diving deep into holistic personal development, and just building your mindset to have a happier, healthier life. We're going to be talking with some of my best friends. I didn't know we were going to go there on this. People that I admire. When we say listen to your body, really tune into what's going on. Authors of books that have changed my life. Now you're talking about sympathy, which is different than empathy, right? And basically have conversations that can help us get through this crazy thing we call life. I already believe in myself. I already see myself. And so when people give me an opportunity, I'm just like, oh, great, you see me too. We'll laugh together, we'll cry together and find a way through all of our emotions. Never forget, it's okay to cry as long as you make it a really good one. Listen to A Really Good Cry with Radhi Devlukia on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Bring a little optimism into your life with The Bright Side, a new kind of daily podcast from Hello Sunshine, hosted by me, Danielle Robey, and me, Simone Boyce. Every weekday, we're bringing you conversations about culture, the latest trends, inspiration, and so much more. Thank you for taking the light, and you're going to shine it all over the world, and it makes me really happy. I never imagined that I would get the chance to carry this honor and help be a part of this legacy. Listen to The Bright Side on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search The Bright Side. At number three is one of the nicest people I've ever had a chance to talk to and interact with online, and it is Pixar artist Matthew Lund. I kind of set out with a goal at the start of this year is I just wanted to talk to somebody from Pixar, 
And I did some research on Twitter of finding, you know, people responsible for making those movies. Not just the animation, but the stories that really draw us into Pixar movies, the stories that make us cry. And I found the guy responsible for that. His name is Matthew Lund. He posts a lot about behind the scenes of Pixar movies, like original concept art. And I did some research on him and found that he was just responsible for some of the biggest Pixar movies ever, from Toy Story to Finding Nemo to Up. And I had to have him on the podcast. And I talked to him about that, the emotional moments he has created through Pixar and the ones that really made us cry. So this is number three, Pixar story artist, Matthew Lund. I'm joined now by Matthew Lund. He's a former Pixar story artist and animator. He's the guy behind movies like the Toy Story films, Monsters, Inc. Wearing his Monsters, Inc. hat right now, actually. Finding Nemo up. All these movies that just make us feel all of these emotions. And that was kind of your job, right? Oh, yeah. Still is. But yes, it was for, for over 10 films at Pixar. 10 films. That's a lot of movies. So what I wanted to do is I put together a list of the five times you've really made me feel things in the Pixar movies you've worked through and just kind of go through some of these of the stories behind how these moments came to be and just what's kind of the process of making people feel these emotions for these animated characters. Absolutely. This sounds fun to me. All right. So let's start first at the very beginning, the first Pixar movie, Toy Story. And I think just the overall premise of Toy Story, it's these toys that when nobody's around, they come to life. And being able to take that and create this kind of connection with the audience of like, oh, I identify with these, you know, these characters now. And it's that moment for me whenever Woody gets replaced and you see all the Woody posters come down and the Buzz Lightyear stuff go up that I, as a kid, felt like, man, I really feel for Woody right now. What was the kind of yeah. idea behind that? Well, you know what? It's, I... I haven't been asked that before, but that is a very good question. It, just for anybody out there that doesn't know, there are four of these story, Toy Story films. I've worked on all of them. And one of the secrets to why these stories all work, because seldom do sequels work, is because we kept going back to Woody's greatest fear, which is being abandoned. Now, that is a universal theme that all people fear in life, all ages, all genders, all cultures. We all fear being replaced. We fear getting old, not loved anymore. Um, it's that fear of abandonment. And it really strikes a chord in the audience in Toy Story because it's something we can all relate to. And that's one of the, those things you want in a story. You want it to be relatable and connect with an audience, even if the characters are toys, rats, cars, robots, whatever. So that is the reason why that made such an impact on audiences um, uh, was because of Woody's fear of being abandoned. And how did the idea of Woody like become like, okay, we're going to kind of base it around Woody? Like, why, why was it a cowboy? Why was he going to be the leader? Well, that's, that's a, another great question. You know, at first, he was going to be a ventriloquist doll. You know, one of those puppets that you put your hand in, yeah. and you kind of operate the mouth, and they look creepy, like the Goosebumps kind of, uh, you know, character TV show, um, which, first off, is really creepy. Uh, people make a decision within the first couple of seconds whether they like a character. And if your main character is a ventriloquist doll, that's bad. <laughs> so really it turned into, <clears throat> we knew it was going to be a buddy story. And usually in a buddy story, two characters in the beginning don't like each other, but then they become best friends at the end. 
And it's always nice when not only do the characters not blend together because of their personalities, but also because of their physical appearance. And there was nothing better than to do kind of the future and the past stuck together, a cowboy and a spaceman. And so that was, that was really the idea. And then also, um, you know, the whole idea for Toy Story really starts years before with the animated short um, that was called Knickknack. Um, <clears throat> The one with the little toy that is the that has the symbols yes. and the drums and stuff. The very first Toy Story, he the idea it was that guy was going to be the main character. It was going to always be a toy, but then it evolved into being Woody the cowboy because of the buddy story. Two characters stuck together that are completely different. Next up on my list, I have Finding Nemo, which. Yeah. very opening of the movie a parent is killed off immediately was that ever an idea of like man maybe this is a too too heavy of a thing for kids like can we really do this and pull this off yeah you know um you would be surprised how many kid films how many animated or live action or children's books for kids start off with the kid being a um, an orphan or their parents are killed off or one of them. It's, it's, it's a surefire way to get the audience to have empathy for the main character because if the character's an orphan or their parent just died, you are immediately like, oh my gosh, I totally care for this kid. So when you watch, you watch so many of the Pixar films, and even if you go through all those like raw doll stories, like James and the Giant Peach and, you know, Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, raw doll, he always had, you know, parents dead or dying in the beginning to be able to get the audience to root for the, for the main character. And then when you look at Toy Story or a lot of the other Pixar films, there is, um, it's pretty consistent that there's only one parent or both parents uh are disposed of the lack of parents that kind of kind of shine sometimes like all right i'm into this now you know i gotta tell you one of the reasons why we also do that and you know it's not just pixar you know you look at frozen they wiped out the parents before right it's a great way to just get empathy for the main character and that's basically what i want to say next movie i have up is toy story 2 and it's the moment again going back to the abandonment thing when jesse gets abandoned you learn about her and yes. it pairs perfectly well with the Sarah McLaughlin song. Like, what oh moment came? God. Was the yeah. song already, like, all right, we're already going to have this song no, for the movie or the moment? That was a sequence that was a last-minute decision on the film. We had worked on, I had worked on Toy Story 2 for almost three years, and it took so many different story iterations. But one of the things that was a real pivotal moment for us in the story was when we decided that Jesse, Jesse has gone through this before. She's been abandoned by a kid and we don't want her just to talk about it. We feel that it would be great to see it in a flashback. And the song was written by Randy Newman, who, you know, wrote most of the Pixar stuff and he was going to sing it. Oh, really? Um, yeah. You know, but it was just the perfect move for when, uh, you know, would fit better to, to have a female voice for Jesse singing. But man, that is a tearjerker. Even for me, who worked on that, it gets me too. 
One of my favorite parts of that movie is whenever they're having to cross the street and oh. they take the traffic cones and hide underneath them. Is that just a thing of like, all right, what's the most entertaining way they could get across the street? Like, is there different pitches for that? Well, oh, you know, that, that was, uh, that was my idea. Okay. And so my, my assignment from the director was essentially, we need to get these toys across the street somehow to Al's toy barn. How are we going to do it? And I sat down and I kind of drew up ideas. And then I finally said, you know what? I need to just go to a freeway. I need to pull my car to the side of the street of us cars driving by me. And I just need to look around at what is around me and say, if I was a toy, what would I use? And just by chance that day, there was like a men at work kind of orange sign and orange pylon cones and stuff. And I was like, I would totally hide under that orange cone <laughs> and I'd sneak across. And then if a car got close to me, maybe they would just weave around me. And so, um, on Twitter just recently, uh, uh, I, I put the first drawing I had done that I showed the director that made him go, okay, we're doing that. So that was, that was how that idea came about. So when you see something like that, do you immediately start making a sketch or do you just make a note of it? Or how, how does that come to, together? I, I remember I did, um, uh, bring my uh, sketchbook in the car and I went right back into the car and I did that sketch. And I, and I, and that was the one that, that kind of created what that whole scene was going to be about. So I want to move on now to up again, first 10 minutes of the movie, you learn all about Ellie and Carl and not only that, but it's all, there's not a whole, there's not dialogue. It's all just through the images, through what we see from them losing the baby to ultimately losing her. Like, how did that come together? (laughs) Well, you know, First off, I would say that when I'm making a film, and this is one of the things I learned early on when I was at film school, you need to always be able to understand what's going on in a movie with the volume off. You should always be able to turn the volume off in a movie and be able to tell what's going on through the visual storytelling. So to be able to pull off 10 minutes with just music and sound effects no dialogue and visuals that bring people to tears. It's not easy, but it is possible. But one of the things that, that really made that work is many iterations. You know, if you ever watch a Jackie Chan movie and I love Jackie Chan movies, he is like, you know, you'll see him jump up, do a spin kick. He'll kick some, you know, some, cup out of somebody's hand that goes and knocks another person out and there's no special effects. He just did it. But you know, he did 100 tries before they caught on camera that final one. But when people watch the film, they go, wow, he's amazing. (laughs) But it's the same thing in an animation and film. We do so many iterations till we get the best version. And then that's what you get to see in the end. And so, you know, it was a little bit of a risk also of having something so emotional in the beginning of the film. Would people be into it? But you know, it hooked people so much that they couldn't stop watching that film after the first 10 minutes. So, and it's, and I'm, I, I got to work on the movie up as a story person and uh, I'm very proud of that film as well. Yeah. I think out of every Pixar film, that is my favorite opening. It just still gets me every single time. It is great. 
The last one I want to talk to you about is Toy Story 3. The most emotional I've ever felt watching an animated movie. The scene where you think everybody's going to die, going into the incinerator. Yeah. Like, how do you get to that level of like, okay, we're going for it here? I know. Well, you know, I think even in the very beginning when we started pitching around this idea, we knew that there needed to be this, they're, they're going to be so close to death moment. But when I got the assignment from the director of what that was going to look like, before we do the storyboards, we do things called beat boards, which is kind of like, what are those key images going to be? Now, I had never been to a garbage dump or a incinerator. And um, I saw a few images online, but there's not a lot of photos of what the inside of a garbage dump looks like. So I had to make a lot of this stuff up. And, um, you know, I, I did these key images. I put them up on, on, on Instagram and Twitter just recently. But those were the images that were the, the, the key inspiration visuals for what that moment was going to look like. But I got to tell you, the thing that I remember in this one meeting that I brought up that I'm so happy we stuck with was that when they're all ready to die in the incinerator, there was going to be a moment where someone just kind of finds a lever and switches it off and it stops, but it felt so anticlimactic. And in those images I'd looked at in the incinerator, there was a claw, those claw things that grab metal at garbage dumps. And I was like, what if those aliens, they had used that giant claw and it was reminiscent of the claw. And Back to the we first one. <laughs> and it was such a, you know, it's such a good feeling when you see people near death and then like the heavens open up and it's like, ah, <laughs> and they get pulled out. It was so great, you know. So when you're so. working on a scene like that and you're spending hours, days, like how do you know that it's still an emotional moment? You're, you've just been looking at it for so long. You're like, is this even still good anymore? That is a very good question. Uh, what I have learned to do is that whenever I'm seeing current edits or current iterations of uh, a sequence or the film as a whole, I always take notes. So like today, Fridays is the day that I see the most current pass of edit of the, the short film I'm directing right now. And I take notes every Friday so I can look back at them and always remind myself, like, did I think that was a funny joke? Did I think that was a sad moment? Because, you know, you end up after a while forgetting um, that that is a great sad moment and then you change it. So you need to really think about that moment, just like you're having a filmmaking diary and write it down. So you, you don't, you don't trick yourself into thinking it was, it's not funny or emotional anymore. And you remove it. A lot of people fall into that mistake. So, yeah. <laughs> well, uh, Matthew, appreciate the time. Everybody listening, if you want to go follow him on Twitter, he's a great follow at Matthew Lund. That's L-U-H-N. I felt like I learned so much and it was just great to learn cool. how these movies were made. Hey, well, thanks for loving these films. And, um, and thanks for everybody else out there for loving those, those films that I've worked on. Thanks. Appreciate it. Have a good day. Okay. Bye. Right. Thank you. At number two, favorite interviews of the year, I'm going with Billy West. Now, a lot of you probably don't recognize that name, but to me, that name is synonymous with voice acting. And even if you don't know his name, you know his voice, you know his work. He has been in so many things that I watched as a kid from Ren and Stimpy, 
Doug, Futurama, the list goes on and on. He was on to talk about the anniversary of Space Jam before the release of Space Jam 2 because he was the voice of Bugs Bunny in the original Space Jam. And what I loved about Billy West is he was so generous with his time, but also so generous with actually doing the voices we were talking about. Like he didn't have to do that. But it makes the interview so much better when he actually does the voices. And it was so cool to hear. I think I was smiling the entire time doing this interview because once he started doing Doug and Bugs Bunny, I just pretty much lost it. So at number two is Billy West. All right. On now with Billy West. How are you doing? I'm doing pretty good. Um, Just woke up, ready to face the day. Uh, Don't want to read the headlines because that'll spoil my day. (laughs) What is the first thing you do when you wake up? Oh, um... I don't know. I start stretching, I guess, because if I just jump out of bed, I'll probably, you know, bounce off the floor. (laughs) What about on a day you're going into maybe do some voice work? What's the kind of first process to get your day started on something like that? Um, I get up early all the time. I mean, it's just a thing. I I get up at like six. um, Sometimes, I mean, I live 35 miles outside of L.A., so... um, the traffic gets to be beastly. It takes a long time. So to be at a gig at 9 a.m. in Los Angeles, I have to leave my house at like, you know, 6.15. And on the way over, like, do you have to like warm your voice up at all at this point? Or are you just so like fine-tuned in your work that you don't really have to do that anymore? I I very rarely ever did warm-ups. If my throat was damaged, I would do a particular little set of exercises that would revive it but i but i never um did exercises i remember one time i i was having trouble with my voice and i was talking to a vocal teacher or a speech teacher and she gave me these tongue twisting exercises to do i said i don't need those things you know i was born doing that stuff so i want to talk about some of your your the voices you've done in your career and i want to say just first of all it's an honor to be talking to you that I was was kind of, I I have Paramount Plus now, and I've been going back and watching all the shows from my childhood, and I was realizing watching these, that like, it's your voice in all these, from Ren and Stimpy to Doug, and I kind of realized, like, how important your voice was in creating those shows and building such an identity with those shows. I kind of want to go back to the beginning first of when it kind of became something maybe you just did as a kid, like doing these voices to something that you were actually like, hey, I could have a career at this. Um, That happened very late, realizing that you could make a career out of it. I mean, I could always, I was always the same way as I am now when I was, I was just a freak when I was a little kid and I used to go around, you know, toretting out voices and making noises. And um, everybody was always like, you know, can you not do that? Can you please not do that? And, I was um, a neighbor lady up the street. She was Italian, and she called me a chiacchieron, which means talking machine. <laughs> you know, because I was always chatting and talking and blabbing, and uh, I couldn't I couldn't be contained. You know, which was very weird because I was basically kind of shy. Yeah. Um. I I was. Um. You know. I found out late in life that I'm, I'd always been on the autism spectrum and I always had OCD and ADHD, except that they didn't have words for that stuff back then. So I, um, you know, I was hyper and I was an empath and, uh, I did I never fit in. I never felt like I fit in, but I could just create worlds of things, you know, just to amuse myself. And I just thought that everybody could do that. So I didn't think it was very special. I find a lot of myself in what you're saying right now. I think for somebody like me who is done stand up who does you know radio now 
I feel mm-hmm. like I've kind of been so in my world of like, I see all these things in my head to where they mm-hmm. make sense. And it's like kind of a craft that I've kind of been able to do. But when you're doing something where you're performing, I think people, people find it kind of odd that you're like quiet or you, you don't really like being around people sometimes. It's, it's kind of a thing, right? I was targeted a lot. You know, I was picked on. And plus I came from an abusive uh, home life. You know, I mean, I got the tar beat out of me all the time for nothing, for no reason at home. And um, so you got to cut through a lot of scar tissue later on in life, try to figure out what happened to you. And I, you know, and I was a drunk and a crazy and a druggie for, for good 20 years. You know, I stopped everything like everything back in 1985 and started um, figuring out what I was going to do. I played music. I was in bands for years. Mm-hmm. And uh, whenever I was on stage and an amplifier blew up or I broke a string or something, I would just start screwing around and the air would become electric. You know, I couldn't understand what was happening. Like the crowd was just stopped dead and they would just look at me and I thought, oh, my God, I'm dying dying up here but it wasn't that they were like they were like almost fatally fascinated so just talking to you now i can kind of hear i think the voices that you say you kind of pulled more more from like your voice of like the red m&m and and fry from futurama Mm -hmm. and how do you go about like kind of taking your voice and embodying a little bit of yourself and creating those characters voices uh one of them was purely intentional like on futurama when i auditioned for fry um, I said, you know, I'm going to do something I've never done before. I'm going to just do my voice only when I was like 25 years old. Cause I remember what I sounded like, you know, I was whiny and nasally and complainy and, you know, oh man, I just spoke a string. Now what am I going to do? You know, that's the way I really sounded. <laughs> I'm channeling myself at 25 years old. Um, the Doug voice was just something delicate. And I imagined myself being a tweener long before they called it that 11 and a half. And I, you know, I, I hadn't gone through puberty, so the voice would be kind of like in the in the mid, somewhere between, you know, young adult and kid. So I made it like this, you know, like poor chap is my dog. And uh, it, it was something realistic about it. I mean, like millions of people and, and lots of people would say to me that, uh, you know, they thought it was like some young person or maybe a woman or something. They didn't picture that it would be some guy, you know. And I also did uh, Roger, and that was based on a real antagonist in my life. The kid was a bugger. He was like, he would bedevil me. His hair came to a point, and his nose came to a point, and he's pointing in my shoulder. You know, and uh, and he had pointy shoot. I mean, this, this kid was a son of a bitch. <laughs> And, uh, and so I pictured this Roger to be like that. Like, you know, he couldn't pass up the opportunity to, to rankle Doug funny. You know, he was like, he's funny, he loser. you know, for no reason, no reason at all. <laughs> so when you're, cre- <laughs> so when you're creating these voices, you have these characters in your head. Like, do you have to see them first to match the voice? Um, yeah. Well, they show you what the character looks like, and then they give you an idea of what it is that they're looking for. And you have to, you have to go off that. You know, you got to try to give them exactly what they're looking for. I think one of my other two favorite voices are one that you kind of use the Three Stooges to kind of channel. And oh, yeah, Larry from Three Stooges. What what was it about the Three Stooges? Because for me, I think growing up, 
that was like the only show that I could watch with my dad and we would both laugh at because it was so kind of simple and easy well, to understand. When, yeah, well, but the thing is, is it's a guy thing. Oh, is that what it you is? <laughs> yeah, it is. It's a truly, it's a guy thing until maybe recently where I'm, I'm watching women on YouTube, young women watching the Stooges and dying laughing and that was not, that was not like that years ago. Women could, couldn't stand them. You know, my mother used to come in and go, how can you watch those awful men yeah, but mom, they're funny, <laughs> you know. But I, um, I, I think I, I stopped going to church when I discovered the Three Stooges because I found my saints. You know what I mean? It's like every morning before school they showed them. So I went to school with a head full of that, and I hated school. I just hated it, and um, and I, I was learning how to act. I was learning how to do comedy just from watching the Three Stooges, and that's what I wound up to do in life. I should have never even bothered walking to school. Just stay at home and watch the Three Stooges. I would have got you so much further. <laughs> well, you know what it is. Back in those days, you know, there was no such thing as show business. I mean, yes, everyone knew it existed, but the bridge from, like, Detroit, Michigan to Hollywood doesn't exist. And and no one back in those days would encourage you, hey, you know what? That's pretty cool. You know, you ought to keep practicing that and we'll, you know, make a tape of you or something or we'll film you. You know, they didn't think like that back then. They was, I was just a pain in the ass. So I want to talk about uh, Space Jam now, which is going to be available now on 4K Ultra HD and digital for the first time. Now, we've mm -hmm. kind of been getting into the voices you created, the original voices, but now you're going and doing a legendary character, Bugs Bunny. Like, how right. do you approach that of, like, keeping the same kind of iconic voice that everybody knows with Bugs Bunny, but also kind of giving it your own spin? Um, I just, I gave it everything I had. I knew that Ivan Reitman had, you know, hired me to do it and I, and I just didn't want to let him down. I mean, I wanted to like, you know, go in like gangbusters and, uh, pretty much what I did. Um, the thing about imitating work that's already been done is, um, the template was set. You got to stick pretty much by what was done and you have to try to be as faithful as you can be. There's other people that do the characters. And, and there's people who prefer like one person's version of bugs over another's and vice versa. And, you know, and same with the other characters. But I mean, I did it for like 10 years or so. And I was, I was grateful. I was honored, you know, I mean, that was Mel Blanc was my idol. Mm -hmm. But the thing is, is, um, you know, people are like, Hey, you're the next Mel Blanc. Well, I don't want to be the next Mel Blanc. You know, I want to be the next me. You can't be the next Mel Blanc by doing Mel Blanc voices. You know, you can be the guy they hire. Yeah. But but in actuality, um, it's much better to be an originator, and and that's what he prided himself on. He he claims that he never did impressions, but he he did a few impressions in those cartoons. So when you're doing like Bugs Bunny having an argument with Elmer Fudd in your brain, is there like a gear shift that you can go between the two voices, or is it just a thing you kind of automatically have been able to do to go from one character to the other? Well, there's like phrases that key you in, um, and you're talking about two different actors. You're not talking about the same actor doing both those voices, so you have to imagine the person doing it and, and try to get into their countenance and, and you know, how much they weigh and how energetic are they? And I do, I do like really, but this happens in a split second with me. It's not like I deliberate, but, uh, Elmer Fudd was, was very quiet, you know, and, uh, and almost childlike. And then when, 
when he got mad, he'd go from zero to 85 in, in a split second into, you know, mania. He's like, be very, very quiet. I'm hunting rabbits. Uh, it's like, and then, all right, rabbit, say your prayers. Come out of there with your hands, you rabbit. So in your mind, that's not, it's not voices to you. It's literally getting into the mindset of two different characters, like, just like an actor would. Yes, and and, and I'm familiar with, with Mel Blanc and what he did, and, uh, and that was just, um, the original voice was like, eh, what's up, Doc? You know, but they sped it up. Ever so slightly, Bugs was sped up. And as a final word, goodbye. I, that, I find that fascinating. That is amazing that you can do that just, just by kind of feeling that in your head. Oh, well, there's guys that can do it, though. I mean, there's not a whole lot of them. There's <laughs> probably about two two or three. But, um, but that's, you know, again, that's like imitating something that's been done. The hard stuff is to try to create something classic that hasn't been done until you did it. Which I think you've done. With all the characters here, I think you've completely done that and kind of made... I kind of associate you with one of the greatest voice actors of our lifetime. So with all the original wow. voices you've created, is it possible to like copyright like one of your characters like that? Nobody can really take that and kind of maybe spin off a character or imitate you in a way. Can you like copyright a voice? Um, no, you can't. You can't really. And um, like you can't copyright a joke. You know, I don't know exactly why that is. I mean, but. I don't think that they, it's not on anybody's radar, you know, like who, who stole a voice from somebody else. I mean, it's almost like in the, in the worldview, it seems pretty picky Yoon, if you ask me. Well, I appreciate the time, Billy. Like this has been amazing to get to talk to you and hear kind of the process behind these voices and kind of just being able to pick your brain. So I really enjoyed this. Oh, me too. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. Have a good day. You too, man. Bye. I'm Elliot Connie, and this is Family Therapy. My best hopes, I guess, identify the life that I want and, and work towards it. I never seen a man take care of my mother the way she needed to be taken care of. I get the impression that you don't feel like you've done everything right as a father. Is that true? That's true, and I'm not offended by that. Thank you for, for going through those things, and thank you for overcoming them. Wow. Thank God for the limits. Every time I have like one of our sessions, our sessions be positive. It just keeps me going. I feel like my focus is redirected in a, in a different aspect of my life now. So, how'd we do today? We did good. The Black Effect presents Family Therapy. Listen now on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Get emotional with me, Radhi Devlukia, in my new podcast, A Really Good Cry. We're going to talk about and go through all the things that are sometimes difficult to process alone. We're going to go over how to regulate your emotions, diving deep into holistic personal development, and just building your mindset to have a happier, healthier life. We're going to be talking with some of my best friends. I didn't know we were going to go there on this. 
people that I admire. When we say listen to your body, really tune in exactly. to what's going on. Authors of books that have changed my life. Now you're talking about sympathy, right. which is different than empathy, yeah. right? And basically have conversations that can help us get through this crazy thing we call life. I already believe in myself. I already yeah. see myself. And so when people give me an opportunity, I'm just like, oh great, you see me too. We'll laugh together, we'll cry together and find a way through all of our emotions. Never forget, it's okay to cry as long as you make it a really good one. Listen to a really good cry with Radhi Devlukia on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Bring a little optimism into your life with The Bright Side, a new kind of daily podcast from Hello Sunshine, hosted by me, Danielle Robey, and me, Simone Boyce. Every weekday, we're bringing you conversations about culture, the latest trends, inspiration, and so much more. Thank you for taking the light, and you're going to shine it all over the world, and it makes me really happy. I never imagined that I would get the chance to carry this honor and help be a part of this legacy. Listen to The Bright Side on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search The Bright Side. And at number one, my favorite interview of 2021 goes to Lou Diamond Phillips because La Bamba is another one of my favorite movies of all time. He plays Richie Valens in that movie. And I just had to ask him questions about that movie that I've had forever. And you know, by listening to this podcast, I bring up and reference that movie a lot. So finally being able to sit down and talk to him was truly an honor. And also I had a lot of message leading up to the release of this interview and then after it aired. I think you guys enjoyed it as well. So at number one, without a doubt, my favorite interview of 2021, Lou Diamond Phillips. On now with Lou Diamond Phillips. I got to say, it's a pleasure to be talking to you. I feel like you're an actor I've been looking up for a long time now. I've been around. I've been around, my friend. So, a lot of mileage. So you grew up in Corpus Christi, Texas, right? Uh, yes, I did, yeah. Did you actually work at Whataburger? Uh, that was one of my first jobs. My very first job was as a cook's assistant uh, on the Navy base. Uh, my dad was in the Navy uh, and uh, uh, got me a job when I was like 16 there. But yeah, shortly thereafter, uh, I, I worked at Whataburger for quite a while. I was like a crew chief and employee of the month and all that. I mean, I, I flipped some burgers, man. <laughs> I love Whataburger. I grew up in Texas, too. And I was wondering, like, if while you're working there... Is it a thing that you tell your coworkers that you wanted to be an actor? Was that like not in your plans at that time? Oh no, 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 no. <laughs> uh, it was it was fairly well known throughout uh, high school that uh, you know I I wanted to uh, become an actor. I mean, I, I was uh, doing uh, high school theater. Uh, you know, in Texas we have the UIL, the University Interscholastic yeah. League, and so I was part of the drama club, and I was uh, you know competing a lot, and unfortunately winning awards, and so I. Uh, a lot of positive reinforcement. Uh, I think everybody knew what my aspirations were at that time. So you've been in movies since the 80s. I, I just wonder at this point, does acting kind of come second nature to you or is it still like a, like a muscle that you have to flex? Uh, I mean, if you're challenging yourself, it's always a, a muscle you have to flex. You always have to work out. I mean, you know, uh, if, if you start phoning it in, man, it shows. You know, pe- people can see if you're uninspired. Uh, and I try not to do roles that, don't matter to me. You know what I mean? I, I, I have to be excited about something anytime I'm going to do it. Um, the work is too hard otherwise, you know? Uh, and, and even when I'm, you know, doing something that would be as seemingly as, uh, you know, uh, familiar as, as the role I'm playing on prodigal son, uh, there's, you know, there's, there's new stuff to it all the time. I mean, uh, uh, the layers of, you know, uh, relationship and history and baggage. I mean, it's, it's, it's always a blast and it's always fun. 
and the uh, you know the the other actors that you work with, man, they they really inspire you to bring your best game all the time, you know. Uh, and I also try to shake it up. I mean, like this movie Adverse that I have out that is a little independent film, you know, that Thomas Ian Nichols put together. Uh, I said yes because, well, first of all, Thomas is a friend, and so is uh, Sean Astin, who was already a part of the cast. Uh, you know, but then Mickey Ward joined and Penelope Ann Miller. And it's like, let's do something a little different. Let's, you know, let's get edgy. Let's not get too comfortable with it. And, uh, you know, it's always, it's always fun to join a, uh, uh, an ensemble like that where, you know, it's not about the money. It's not about the luxury of it. It's about, you know, independent film and an up and coming director like Brian Metcalf. And, and, you know, you keep it fresh for yourself. Yeah, and I want to talk about that movie. You played Dr. Cruz in it, and you mentioned how it had to be something that you wanted to kind of still test yourself in. So when you get that script for that movie, what's your, like, creative process to kind of find your character in that? Like, do you have a creative process to know, like, who you're going to be going into set from when you get the script to when you show up actually to film? Uh, Well, it's funny because it kind of came about because uh, uh, I was doing a lot of conventions, you know, before the pandemic hit. And, uh, uh, I was running into Thomas a lot and, you know, I, I had, you know, known him, uh, you know, uh, in and around Hollywood for a while. And he said, Hey, I'm doing this, uh, independent film, you know, you want to see the script? I said, yeah, sure. You know, and like I said, Sean was already a buddy and he was already attached. And, you know, I, and you look at the role and you go, can, is there something that I can bring to this? Is there something that, you know, I can, uh, uh, illuminate, you know, if you will, you know, as part of the character. And at, at this point in my, my life and career, there's a couple of reasons why I do something. You know, I'm, I'm excited about the role. I'm excited about who I'm working with. And this, this was both, you know, um, uh, being, you know, being the man of a certain age, you know, playing a role that is, you know, uh, um, supportive or is authoritative, you know, uh, that, that tries to keep somebody on the, on the straight and narrow, you know, I, I felt like, you know, being a father, you know, as well, this, there, there was a lot about this role that I could tap into, um, you know, just, just what comes to me, you know, naturally, uh, kind of the same thing with, uh, Gil Arroyo on, on prodigal son, you know, he's the boss, but, uh, he's very, you know, fatherly toward not only his team, but, you know, Malcolm Bright, who was the, uh, the, the, the lead profiler. So there, there's something about, you know, my history, uh, about the, the life that I've lived that, that lends itself to, you know, to, to bringing some, uh, some experience to the role without having to, you know, hit it over the head. It's just part of who you are now. So, uh, you know, that, that, that speaks to me in, in both of the things that I've done recently. And I was recently talking to, to Michael Pena and we were talking about some of the actors who inspired us. Cause I'm Mexican American and he is as well. And what two of the actors he named were Edward James Olmos and you. And I'm sure wow. you kind of get that a lot now of like people who are like, oh, it was kind of seeing you on screen for the first time. That was like, hey, there's somebody who actually kind of looks like me for the first time. Uh, you know, I, it, it, it's interesting, man, because, you know, you just kind of you do what you do and, and you're following your own path. And then eventually you start going, wow, I guess I am carrying a flag here. I guess I am representative of, you know, people who need to be represented. Um, and one of the first times I, I remember experiencing that was I spoke at uh, NYU, uh, you know, uh, at the film school here in New York, and uh, a young Puerto Rican actress, you know, uh, said, you know, about Stand and Deliver, that she finally looked up and saw people that looked like her on screen, and that's why she decided to pursue acting, you know? Uh, and, it, and it's interesting, when I look back, uh, a lot of the guys that were inspirational to me in the 70s, 
you know, with the swarthy guys, you know, uh, De Niro and Pacino and Hoffman, it's like, okay, not everybody has to be Robert Redford. You know, maybe I can actually, you know, have a, have a career at this. Um, and then uh, I wrote a film, you know, uh, in the uh, early 90s called Ambition, where I actually played Filipino-American. And uh, Cecilia Peck was my leading lady, and I got to have dinner with her father, Gregory Peck, at, at a certain point. And he said, uh, you know, Lou, you remind me of my old friend, Tony. <laughs> and I thought, well, what a huge phrase that I was kind of on his path, man, that I was kind of carrying the torch that he started. Uh, and that is, you know, representing so many different communities. You know, not just what I am, you know, blood-wise, but, you know, the, the Latino community and the Native American community. And just, you know, I mean, I played Inuit. I played Asian, <laughs> you know, uh, like in the King High on Broadway. And and that's what it's about is, is representing each of these communities with, you know, with dignity and with respect. And that's really become kind of, a, you know, a, a touchstone of my career. And your breakout role is La Bamba, which is one of my favorite movies of all time. And I think because it, it's not only the story of Richie Valens, but... Ultimately, it's like the story about brothers, which I think why it still resonates now. But I feel like it's hard to find any kind of footage of Richie Valens. And the way his kind of memory lives on is because of your portrayal in that movie. Like, at what point did you realize that you weren't just taking on another role when you were doing that? Um, from the second I read the script, you know, I mean, I, I, I got cast out of uh, Dallas, Texas. Uh, and, um, you know, I, I had no idea why this Hollywood film company was doing this national, you know, talent search. It was, it was ridiculous. I, I really could not believe that I even had the opportunity to audition for this. Um, and I read the script and I just went, oh, 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 I knew it was the chance of a lifetime. Um, and I, even my acting coach said, you're never going to get this role, but hopefully you're going to do a great job and they'll give you something smaller, you know, like the drummer <laughs> or something, you know? Um, uh, and so I mean, it was, it was really lightning in a bottle when I got the role and, and then, you know, working with Luis Valdez and becoming close with the family, which was, you know, like getting thrown into the deep end of the pool. You know, I, I met Bob Morales at, at the, at the screen test, you know, on the, on the, on, on the Warner Brothers lot. I mean, it was, uh, it was crazy. Uh, so I knew, I knew it was a big deal from the beginning. Uh, and, and, uh, you know, even, even beyond that. So I, I, I felt, you know, very fortunate, uh, and it's funny because you're right. I mean, there, there literally is only a uh, two, I think, uh, film clips of Richie, one uh, from American Bandstand yeah. and one from a movie called Go, Johnny, Go, uh, where he sings, come on, let's go. So, you know, there wasn't a whole lot to hang my head on performance-wise. Uh, I really relied, you know, on the family to kind of fill in the blanks for me. What is that like talking to the real-life Bob when you're going to play his brother? Like, does he start to, like see his brother in you like how does that relationship work uh I, it, you know i mean they were they were so kind to me from the beginning i mean literally bob uh said later you know the the, the when he laid eyes on me and then saw the audition he goes he knew that i was going to get the job uh which was really sweet but you know connie and irma i mean all all of the siblings uh, little mario who was only a baby at the time uh and his mom you know uh connie she was around so they were there every single day and uh, um, it would always be like, well, would Richie do this? Or what would Richie do in this situation? You know, they were, they were able to tell me these things. And they, it wasn't just about Richie the rock star. It was about Richie the human being, you know, the 17-year-old kid. Uh, and, and so uh, that, you know, that was really, uh, uh, I think, what fleshed out the character and, and, and helped him, you know, be, be more than just you know, an image, if you will. I wonder now if you're ever out in public and you hear the song Sleepwalk by Santo and Johnny, do you immediately have like flashbacks to filming that movie? 
Uh, always, man, always. And and what I always go to because it's what you know, it's what is playing in, uh, over the in the film is that uh, that hillside. Yeah. And Luis Valdez made me <laughs> so I run up that thing like twelve times, man. By the time I was over, I thought I was going to drop dead. I mean, my my legs were on fire. I don't know what he was looking for, but we ran up that hill so many times, man. After that movie came out, were people just yelling Richie at you all the time in public? Uh, they still do. They still do. <laughs> <laughs> Did you get to keep anything cool from the movie? Uh, I still have the green guitar, uh, but it's in it's in California right now in my house there. I'm in New York City uh, where I'm filming Prodigal Son, and uh, when the pandemic hit, you know, the rug got kind of pulled out from under us, so I was not, not able to go home. Uh, and so we, uh, my family, uh, Yvonne and my 13 year old daughter have been living here in New York city for, uh, you know, for a year and a half. I mean, uh, uh, you know, but it is what it is. Uh, but yeah, I, I kept the uh, green guitar. And what was the technique you learned? Cause you didn't learn to play guitar for the movie. You just kind of learned like the fingering style. Is that what it was? Yeah, no, I, I learned, uh, I, I still don't play the guitar. I had to learn all of the fingering just for, uh, you know, just for the uh, for the film, uh, and, and it was stupid of me. I didn't I didn't pick it up. I should have picked it up afterwards, <laughs> but I didn't. Moved on to other things. So the following year, in uh, 1988, Stand and Deliver comes out, and that movie has just a, such a large cast. I wonder, like, when you're filming that, how hard is it to kind of wrangle everybody in to do a scene? Not difficult, man. I mean, you know, it's like we got a, a, a pretty massive uh, ensemble cast for Prodigal Son as well. Um, uh, and for the movie adverse that I just did, uh, it was literally just one day of shooting all my scenes with Thomas Ian Nichols. So that becomes easy. I mean, that's, that's, it's, it's not like, you know, putting together a, <laughs> an amateur show in, in the uncle's barn. Uh, there, there's an entire army of people who are doing scheduling and doing, um, uh, wrangling of the actors and whatnot. So, uh, it's, they, they, as a professional, you're there when you're supposed to be there and, you know, you do what, uh, what, what's required of you that day. I wonder when you're doing that movie, the, the line that always sticks out to me is your line when you're like, I strangled him and his body is decomposing in my locker. Like how hard is that to say with a straight face with everybody there? No, you look forward to it, man. I mean, but that's, you know, that's <laughs> once again, that's just part of the acting. I mean, it's, uh, you know, there, there there were lines in Longmire, and there were lines, uh, continue to be lines in, in Prodigal Son, especially when I'm working with Keiko Agena, uh, where, you know, you, you, you get tickled. You just get, you know, and, and uh, thank goodness there's always take two if you, if you crack up, you know. But, uh, yeah, that, that particular line I knew was going to go down in history. <laughs> was that a genuine reaction in the movie? Like, the, the laughter seems just so genuine after that. Yeah, it was, it was, you know, I mean, the entire, you know, the entire cast, you know, got into it. Uh, so, uh, you know, especially Will Cote, who's just a wonderful, wonderful guy. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, I, I think quite often the, uh, the warmth and the, the chemistry and the happiness that you see on screen uh, is, is the real deal. You know, it's hard to, hard to manufacture that. Well, really appreciate the time. Everybody go check out the new movie, Adverse. Check out um, Lou and Prodigal Son. And it's been really great getting to talk to you. I just wanted to really let you know, like, how much your work has kind of affected my life. And, you know, just being able to see somebody, like, looks different and kind hey, of represents man, the story for me. the torch and wave the flag, bro. You know, you got to represent, right? Yeah. Uh, I appreciate that. And uh, I'll send you a, a nice Whataburger care package wherever you are right now. I mean, I, what's your favorite thing to get from there? Do you get sick? Did you get sick of that food while you were working there? No, not at all. I mean, man, you, you know, you, you because of the, you're an employee. You got, you know, you got the employee uh, employee meals, and you know, they kind of had like these little uh, coupons that you would turn in. But uh, yeah, man, I think I eat Whataburger every day. I, it was it was fantastic, and not only that, I got to make it myself. So you know, I made it just like I wanted it. <laughs> well, appreciate the time. I'll talk to you later. All right, thanks, Mike. All right, Bye. have a good one. 
So that's the list. My top five favorite interviews of 2021. Make sure you're subscribed to the podcast to get brand new episodes starting in 2022. And I will say this, I've already booked my first big interview of 2022. And it's probably going to be the biggest person I've ever had on this podcast. I'll just leave it at that. I'll give some clues later on social media. So if you're not following me there, go do that. I'm at Mike Destro on every single social media platform. That's Mike, D-E-E-S-T-R-O. Links are also in the episode description. And just thank you to everybody for listening for another year, for sharing the podcast on social media, and mainly for allowing me to share my passion and movies with you every single week. I look forward to another year of doing interviews, of doing movie reviews and breaking down other movie topics. So I hope you join me another year here on the podcast. And until next time, later. The Black Effect presents Family Therapy, and I'm your host, Elliot Connie. Jay is the woman in this dynamic who is currently co-parenting two young boys with her former partner, David. David, he is a leader. He just don't want to leave me. But how do you lead a woman? How do you lead in a relationship? Like, what's the blueprint? David, you just asked the most important question. Listen to Family Therapy on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Tamika D. Mallory. And it's your boy, my son, the general. And we are your hosts of TMI. And catch us every Wednesday on the Black Effect Network, breaking down social and civil rights issues, pop culture, and politics in hopes of pushing our culture forward to make the world a better place for generations to come. Listen to TMI on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's right. Oh, hi, I'm Rachel Zoe, and my podcast, Climbing in Heels, is back and better than ever. You might know me from the Rachel Zoe Project, or perhaps from my work as a celebrity stylist. And guess what? I'm still just as obsessed with all things fashion, beauty, and business. Climbing in Heels is all about celebrating the stories of extraordinary women, and this season is here to bring you a weekly dose of glamour, inspiration, and fun. Listen to Climbing in Heels every Friday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.